cue the accordion. I've always wanted to say that. Kick back and get comfy while hosts Heather Wenig and her co-hosts from the Early Childhood Nerd Collective explore ways to cause and effect. Dig that funky accordion. Welcome to Cause and Effect. This is that early childhood nerd, Heather Burnt, and I'm here today with a brand new nerd for the podcast. We've got Woo-hoo! Pamela, or Megan Madison. Sorry, Pamela is like a middle name, right? Yeah. That's on Facebook. That's like it. Is in my head, yeah. So <laughs> Megan Madison is here with us th- for this episode. Megan, what do you want people to know about you? Hmm. Good question. <laughs> um, I am definitely an early childhood nerd. Um, I started in early childhood, um, as I did a lot of babysitting when I was young. Um, and then when I went to college, I needed a part-time job to help kind of make ends meet. Um, and so I was an assistant teacher in a Waldorf after-school program for four years. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I graduated college, I was like, what am I going to do with a degree in religions? Um, (laughs) And I thought, well, let me try out teaching, and there's a program where I can get a master's, um, and I'll be in the classroom, and I think maybe I could be good at that. I've been doing it part-time for a while. Um, So then I became a lead teacher in a Head Start program for a couple of years, and that's, I think, when I fell in love, and I knew this is my passion. I really love early childhood education, Uh Um, and but I also had a lot of questions after my first couple of years in the classroom. Um, especially about like deep social inequalities that were affecting the lives of the children I was working for and their families. And that's what led me to graduate school. So now I'm working on a PhD in early education policy um, and I'm involved with um, NACI's Diversity and Equity Interest Forum. Um, Yeah, and that's what keeps me busy. Yeah, awesome. So Megan and I met sort of, we've never met in real life, but we've met in the virtual world. <laughs> um, because we were going to both kind of facilitate the that d- diversity and equity education forum, and then I bailed on her and let her do it all by herself. So, um, so that's, but that's what we're going to talk about today is sort of anti-bias education and equity issues in early childhood. So I'm going to go ahead and read the quote, Megan, if you're ready. Yeah, all go right. for it. So this is from uh, Leading Anti-Bias Early Childhood Programs, A Guide for Change by Louise Derman Sparks, Debbie Lee Keenan, I don't know how to say her name, and John Nim. So the quote is, realistically, early care, early child care education, I'm not sure what that ECCE stands for in this, but I'm going to start over. Hold on. Realistically, ECCE <laughs> practitioners who have been absorbing their families and societal assumptions, stereotypes, and prejudices about human identity since childhood cannot be expected to suddenly teach children not to absorb these same beliefs and attitudes, and yet that's exactly what a program leader might expect. Mm. So that's that's pretty intense. That's I think that's pretty heavy for two sentences or whatever. Yeah. So um, can I can I ask you just to to talk about why you picked this one, why why sure. this one stood out to you? 
Um, I think it really stood out to me in part because of some of the work I've been doing with the Interest Forum, and then also I've been working part-time with an organization called Border Crossers, where we lead um, anti-bias professional development, especially around issues of race and racism with um, teachers pre-K through 12 throughout New York City. Um, and so a lot of times in my work with border crossers, I'm having conversations with school leaders and child care program directors um, who are very much committed um, to making their programs anti-bias programs. Um, and they recognize there's a role for us as educators to cultivate um, anti-bias competencies in young children. Mm-hmm. And yet there's the struggle of how are we going to equip young children with skills to um, know themselves, to interact with others across lines of difference, and to take a stand on social justice issues if we as adults haven't been offered the opportunity to cultivate those mm-hmm. same competencies that we're trying to instill in young children. Right. Um, so how do we create this space for us as adults to do our own work um, so that we can then hopefully help young people do the work that they need and want to do? Yeah, and so would you would you agree that um, I th- maybe the biggest barrier is 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 panic or fear when an adult is thinking about having to face their own stereotypes or prejudices or any of those things, or or the they have to face the fact that they might have some that they mm-hmm. haven't ever given thought to, and so they sort of panic and go into denial. Maybe. Yeah, I think that's definitely. I mean. I don't know that I'm expert enough to know the biggest barrier, yeah. um, but I you don't I, have to quantify it. <laughs> I mean, even for myself, right? Yeah. Like to really sit down and look at myself in the mirror and confront the ways in which, even without my consent or awareness, I've internalized certain stereotypes and biases from the media, from society, mm-hmm. from the world around me. Like sometimes looking in that mirror is ugly. It's hard. Yeah. It's painful. Um, and it's really easy to use all of the powers at my disposal to avoid looking at <laughs> fear, even yeah. though it's really necessary. So, yeah. yeah, that fear of confronting our own uh, shortcomings or um, just the reality that we, like everybody else, um, have internalized some of these biases mm-hmm. is hard. Yeah. Uh, so when you're when you're working with the border crossers, is that what it's called? Yeah. Are there like first first steps that you take to help people do that kind of reflection, or is that part of the process? Is just getting people reflecting about it? Yeah, I think. I mean, the first step, um, at least in the trainings that I do, is to build a sense of community uh-huh. and to establish kind of um, ground rules or community norms for doing the work in community mm-hmm. um, because it's really hard. I mean, there are things that you can do on your own. You can read books, you can Google things, you can attend webinars. Um, but often the moments when I'm confronting most clearly my own biases, it's in relationship with other people mm-hmm. who are able to point out, hey, Megan, that thing you said, this landed on me this way. I know you didn't intend for it to be that way. Um, mm-hmm. But like having partners in this journey is really important. So establishing who those partners are and figuring out how we're going to communicate um, in that journey, I think, is step one. Mm-hmm. And then step two is coming up with shared definitions, because we all define things like race and racism really differently. 
So figuring out, like making sure we're on the same page in terms of what we mean when we say racism, what we mean when we say race, mm-hmm. it feels like step two. Mm-hmm. So I know, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a lot of times if I try to talk about the potential for social justice work with mm-hmm. early childhood, people look at me like, these are three-year-olds. Uh-huh. <laughs> What do you mean social justice work with a three-year-old? But it, it comes, sometimes it's just how do I interact with that three-year-old? And that's yeah. the beginning of the social justice work. Um, and so right now I'm having, <clears throat> excuse me, conversations with people about the research that's coming out about the disproportionate rates of expulsion for African-American and Latino boys in preschool. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's a hard conversation to have because it sounds like an accusation right out of the bat, right out of the box, but it's really just an invitation to think, is there any truth to this for me? Mm -hmm. If if we can switch it from accusation to invitation, I think it becomes a much more productive conversation, but yeah, human beings are hard to to do that with. So, um, yeah. So I had a question in there. Hold on. So so how, I guess, how would you describe our, and I'm just springing this on you, I know, but how would you describe our um, opportunities for impacting social justice issues with children under five years old? Like, like what what can we do? Oh, we can do so much. (laughs) We can do so much. Honestly, like that, I, I, love and respect and admire um, our colleagues who work with kids in the K through 12 sector. Uh Um, But I really think that there is so much around social justice work that we can do with young children. Mm -hmm. Um, I really think that young children uniquely see and are analyzing the world around them um, as a part of like the unique developmental stages that Mm -hmm. kids you know, zero to eight are going through Uh that are really Mm -hmm. ripe for explorations of structural inequality. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also think that kids make the developmentally young children make awesome activists. I mean, (laughs) you, you can't go in any early childhood program and not hear somewhere a a young child saying, that's not fair. That's not fair. (laughs) Which is essentially about like young children are very much interested in justice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like to be able to tap into that innate sense of justice, um, I think is a really cool opportunity. Yeah. So maybe one of the one of the first things we can do as direct care practitioners with young children is when we hear it's not fair, stop and sit with that for a little bit. When we hear children saying that's not fair, regardless of what the context is, instead of just saying, oh, you know, I'll solve that problem for you and stepping in and taking care of it saying, well, tell me why you think that's not fair. What could we Mm -hmm. do? And who does, who is it not fair for? And, and really just help them explore that. And even if it's just about who has the scissors at the art table, (laughs) that's the beginning of a conversation about justice and equity. Yes, totally. Totally. Yeah. And starting to envision what does fair look like, Mm -hmm. right? And how do we create, like, we have, sometimes, as early childhood providers, we spend more of children's waking hours with young children in community than anybody else. And so if we can create, you know, little classrooms, little spheres, little, like, utopian ecosystems (laughs) where we're, like, trying to create equity, create equitable communities together. Yeah, yeah. 
if kids have a taste of that from a young age, once they leave us and move out into the rest of the world, like why would they settle for anything less? Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to be fighters for equity and justice for the rest of their lives if they have a taste of it in yeah. early childhood programs. Yeah, I really yeah. Um, shocked a friend one night when we were talking. She doesn't work in early childhood, but um, she lets me talk to her about it anyway. And, uh, <laughs> so I was talking about anti-bias holiday stuff. It was uh-huh. holiday time, and I, you know, I sort of had that sitting heavy on me. Um, and she said, "Well, why on earth would you bring, a, you know, if all of your children celebrate Christmas, why would you even bring anything else in?" Mm. Um, and I know there are some who would say it's not relevant if it's not really in the classroom, and why would you do it? But for me, it's because if from birth to five or six, when they're with me if they have had books about and seen about and heard about and heard the words, then they get out into the world and it's not weird to them Mm -hmm. to have other holidays and they don't get all uptight about happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, because that's just a familiar part of their life so far. Um, And I think it's very cool that I get to be part of that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And have that opportunity. So Uh, But I wanted to go back to fair for a minute, because I think that might be another thing that adults have to spend some time with, um, because we think fair sometimes we slip into mean it means equal. Mm. And we get all, you know, it's like it's not fair that she gets to leave work early and I have to stay. That's not what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So sometimes so maybe if if they want to, you know, someone who was listening said, okay, yeah, I'm going to really explore fairness. When children start talking about fairness, we have to explore it with ourselves a little bit too. And figure out what we mean by the word. Yeah. Have you ever seen that graphic of um, equity and equality? Where they're like looking over a fence. Yes. They're standing on boxes. Yeah. I tried to describe it in an earlier episode and failed miserably. So if you have a better (laughs) description of it. Well, uh, I'm sure we can, like, put it in a link somewhere, or I'll definitely post it on the Facebook forum so you can see it. I mean, I think the most powerful thing about it is the visual, Uh but it's basically, like, um, and you can help me out describing it, but there's a fence um, in front of a baseball game, and there's three people who are of different heights who are trying to see and watch the baseball game. And there's one person who's tall enough where they can see above the fence, and they can see the baseball game very clearly. There's another person who's, uh, you know, barely reaches the top of the fence um, and can kind of strain if they stand on their tiptoes to see over the fence and see the baseball game. And there's another person who's so short that they can't um, see, you know, they're just looking straight at the fence. They can't see over the fence and see the baseball game. And um, then there's an, another image where it's these three people and they receive an equitable treatment. So they all receive the same intervention. They all get a one-foot box to stand on. And the person who could already see over the fence just can see even more. (laughs) And the person in the middle can, can finally see over the fence without being able to strain. And the person who couldn't see over the fence at all still can't see over the fence. Um, and that's like equitable. Everybody gets the same Same. intervention. Um, and yet the inequality still remains. They can't all see over the fence. And then there's a third image of equity, which is everybody gets what they need which in this case is a different support to be able to achieve the same outcome of being right. able to see um, 
the baseball game. So the shortest person gets two of those boxes to stand on so that they can see above. The person who could already see above the fence doesn't need any boxes because they could already see. And the person who um, only needed one box got one box to be able to see over the fence. Uh-huh. Yeah, I... And it's such a clear way of illustrating the difference between equity and equality yeah. for adults. But I've actually found in my conversations with young children that it's not such a mind-blowing concept. That they get, like, Timothy needs this thing in order to sit at circle time, whereas Betsy doesn't. Um, And that's okay. We all need different things to be able to participate in the same community together. Which I think is another, is a good example of how we can learn from children. Like, children can help us unlearn a little bit because it makes perfect sense to them already. Um, Where we've got all this baggage to let go of before we get there. Yeah. I remember recently um, I was, uh, so I nanny part-time, a six-year-old right now, when I'm not working at Border Crossers or working on my dissertation. Um, <laughs> all that extra and, time you have. <laughs> right, yeah, all that extra time. <laughs> um, and uh, I grew up in a small town um, in northern Michigan, and so um, it was very racially homogenous. It was almost all white. Me and my um, two younger sisters were pretty much the only people of color and our dad in the town. And so racial inequality was definitely happening there, but it looked very different than the way it looks in New York City. Um, and so I remember having a conversation um, with the child that I nanny when he was four. Um, and he, being four, is looking around his world and seeing patterns and trying to figure out what it all means. And he was noticing that all of the service providers, that the um, janitors, the bus drivers, the um, all of the people in kind of low status service positions were people of color in his community and all the people in positions of authority, the bosses, the um, teachers, the presidents, um, not at that time, but many presidents you know, um, were white people. And so he was trying to figure out what does all of this mean? Um, and he would ask me lots of questions about it. You know, why are all the bus drivers black um, is how he phrased it. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting for me being an adult, those inequalities I had also seen, right? Like I see them every day when I walk around the city, uh-huh. but because uh-huh. I've become so acculturated to it, like there was a degree to which it took his prompting for me to re-see the inequalities, uh-huh. You know, or like around homelessness, for example, you live in New York City and there are people who are experiencing homelessness all over the place. And after a few weeks, you get so acculturated, you know, I'm not proud of it, but there's a degree to which I become numb to that really stark reality. Mm -hmm. But you can't walk around um, with a four-year-old without encountering it. And then asking, why is there a person sitting on the side of the road who doesn't have a house to live in? Mm -hmm. Um. So there are really wonderful ways that young people can can push us out of our acculturation and our numbness right. to the inequalities. And and our fear. I mean, that's that yeah. it comes back to that for me a lot because I remember. So my son is old now, but he used to mm-hmm. be young. <laughs> um, so we I lived in a very small town in Nebraska, and um, a, very similar. My my son had really never seen. Uh, someone with brown skin like he only knew white people and uh, the child care center he went to when we moved to Indiana there was one little boy whose family was from Africa and his name was Tola and one day Curtis my son said why is Tola's skin dirty Mm. and his teachers freaked out and scolded him for asking and were obviously really uncomfortable Um, 
So, so there was an opportunity like you're describing, but with a very different outcome because the teacher wasn't quite ready yet. Um, and yeah. hadn't spent time preparing for that or thinking that through and, um, their, her own discomfort kind of got in the way of what could have been. Well, it, it's not dirty. <laughs> it's just a different color than yours and, and continuing that conversation. And, um, I, th- I think that's, uh, something we we overlook the opportunities just to provide visibility for difference Mm -hmm. in diversity um i've heard people you know i've seen people roll their eyes or heard them talk about you know it's not that big of a deal if we don't have books with diverse depictions Mm -hmm. and diverse characters and diverse stories or baby dolls or you know people props in the block area but invisible invisibility is really harmful for young children for any of us but um so so thinking in terms of am i just making this a a, a, an environment where we can talk about reality yeah and provide that for children um but it starts with us yeah what ended up happening with the situation with your son did you have a conversation with the teacher i did yeah um yeah and just sort of helped helped her um, like we went and looked for some books and we asked Tola's family to come in and share some of their um, family pictures. And we made sure that we had um, family pictures became a big piece of that. Like we, we included them all around the classroom. And um, so it, we, it wasn't like a big deal, but we just made sure that for the next few weeks, we really spent time bringing, bringing that into bringing visibility in. Does that make sense? Like making, yeah, but yeah. So, and the, and the teacher of course felt really bad. It was an instinctive reaction. She was worried Tola's feelings were going to be hurt. Like it wasn't coming from any negative, bad place. Mm -hmm. Um, She just hadn't spent any time preparing herself for that kind of a, of a comment from a three-year-old. Yeah. Well, and she wasn't prepared, right? Like it's no accident that so many of us end up in classrooms with very little to no preparation for dealing with anti-bias issues. I mean, that's a larger structural issue about how do we prepare and support our workforce to engage in these conversations in the long term. Yeah, which, uh, I mean, I'll just say this, the book that this comes from, that this all started with, this Leading Anti-Bias Early Childhood Programs, is, yeah. it's, it's right there in the title. It's a guide for change. It's, mm-hmm. It very clearly lays out how to, how to meet your staff where they are with these issues mm-hmm. and this thinking, um, how to decide where to go next and how to be respectful through the whole process. And um, so I recommend it if anyone's listening and thinking they want to they want to read more about it. Um, and if you're not a class yeah. or not a program leader, this one really is for like directors or principals. Uh, Louise Derman Sparks original book, just the anti-bias curriculum or anti-bias education for what is it? Early children, early young children and ourselves. Yeah, is an excellent starting point. I agree. Um, for that. And I love one other thing yeah. um, that I loved about your story was, like, in in that um, situation, you were the family member um, who was able to kind of, like, bring the conversation to the attention of the teacher and raise yeah. the teacher's awareness. Yeah. And I, yeah. I like that story because I think another fear that gets in the way sometimes for us as professional teachers when we're in that position is we're afraid that if we do, or we say something in the classroom, it's going to upset parents right? or it's not going to, you know what I mean? Like they're not going to be on the same page, Uh but it's actually, that's just kind of a myth, right? Like 
certainly there will be colleagues who are uncomfortable and some parents who are com- uncomfortable, but there's also lots of family members who are very eager for us <laughs> educators to take on the work of anti-bias yeah. education yeah. and are going to yeah. be the ones who are our best partners and allies um, as yeah. we engage in this process. Right. And that's, so. That's true family engagement. That's not inviting them into an open house (laughs) and then getting mad because only three families show up. That's that's really what we're meaning when we're talking about engagement. Find out how they can contribute and that's how they want to contribute. Then welcome that. Yeah. Um, So I just as I was preparing for this, I did go and just kind of flip through the other anti-bias education book, too. And um, there was at the very early, very early in the first chapter, um, the author talks about this, there being a deep hopefulness in this mm. anti-bias work. So I kind of wanted to end with that just because I felt like that was really powerful. Um, you know, we're doing this because we believe that there can be a difference and we believe that we can make things better and we believe that children are the way to get us there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's there's deep hopefulness involved. Um, and even when it's frustrating, we just need to, or or scary or feels like nothing's working. Um, looking for those small little successes can help yeah. us can help us build that that feel, feeling of hopefulness. So um, we're we're almost at a half an hour already. <laughs> that I flew, yeah. So, so nervous. So we like. <laughs> I like to try and end the episode with like something. You know, here's something concrete you can go and do if you want to make a difference or you want to you want to try and implement some of this. So, do you have any advice for early childhood teachers who want to? start being more reflective or start, start, I don't know, listening to the children and their uh, ideas? Good question. I didn't give you time to prepare for that. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's hard to give blanket advice because everybody has different work and everybody's in a different place. Yeah. There yeah. is, I will say, a plug for Julie Olson Edwards recently wrote um, an article in Exchange Magazine uh-huh. um, that's particular particularly targeted towards like you want to start engaging in anti-bias work what are some initial steps mm-hmm. um and I think I remember one thing I learned from that article um was start by observing observing yourself and observing the young people in your life yeah. um sometimes you know we there's this common myth that kids don't see race or kids don't see inequality that they're kind of innocent uh-huh. to the injustice of, of, of the world um, and unfortunately, that is just a myth. Young children are very much aware of the deep inequalities along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, all of it. They're uh-huh. seeing it. So if we just like challenge ourselves to listen in during dramatic play or during gross motor time or during lunchtime, um, listen in and observe um, what the young children in our life are grappling with. That's a good place to start. Um yeah. And then also listening to our own thoughts, you know, when we're feeling totally fed up with Johnny and feeling like this kid's got to go, this program's not the right fit for him, um, sitting down and really taking some time to reflect on like, what's going on with me that uh-huh. I'm having this reaction um, to this child? What are the, the narratives in my own head um, that I might be able to bring to my conscious awareness yeah. and then potentially interrupt? Yeah. So is that that article from Julie in a current issue, like the n- most recent issue? I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah, it's sitting so, on my kitchen table. Yeah. So, so I just want to put a plug in because if you go to Child Care Information Exchange's website, 
you can download up to five articles free before you have to subscribe for anything to anything. Oh, great. And there are articles on demand. So um, Julie Olson Edwards is her name. And if you wanted to look at that article, you could just search by author and find it. And, and even if you don't have a subscription to the magazine, you could access uh, the, the information Megan was just talking about. So. Cool. Um, and then also, of course, join the interest forum. <laughs> yes. From <laughs> NAEYCE. Yeah. Become a part of our interest forum. Okay. Follow us on Facebook. Um, join so, our Facebook group. I'm making a note. So when this when this podcast posts, I'm going to put all that stuff in the comments so they can link right <laughs> to the pages and stuff. Um, all right. Well, thanks, Megan. This was awesome. Um, I Thank hope you'll, you so much. hope you'll join us again for another episode. Yeah. Sometime. All right. So, okay. And thank you all for listening. It's been another episode of Cause and Effect. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.